0: You're listening to Imperfect Paradise from LA Studios. I'm Antonia Cerejido. This is part two of our series, Nuri and the Secret Tapes, an exclusive look behind the scenes of the LA City Council tape scandal. In last week's episode.
2: And there's more, she called your son a monkey. And that's kind of when I lost it.
0: Nuri Martinez has just announced she is resigning from her LA City Council seat. Much of the shock of the scandal was hearing someone like Nuri Martinez, who people once viewed as a progressive, saying the things
1: she said. I identified a lot with her because we, I felt like we were unapologetically Latina.
3: I am a child of the working poor, and this is why I champion issues of
0: the working poor. Nuri was known for fighting on behalf of the working class and immigrant families. But now, she's known for something very different.
1: Her words just confirms how racist the other Mexican can be towards Indigenous people.
0: We're going to tell you where Nuri came from and how her upbringing and her family's experiences shaped her political views and ambitions.
2: She treated homelessness as a problem for housed people.
4: I had conversations with Nuri, and I said, Nuri, you know if we do this, you know what's going to happen. You know a bunch of Black people are going to get arrested.
3: My politics come from a lived experience, that's it. I know what it feels like to be poor.
0: And we're also going to get into the fights happening within the L.A. City Council in the weeks and months leading up to that secretly recorded conversation.
3: Now we're, we're actually rivals.
2: We're rivals. And Nuri, I think, took it as me proactively making a statement against her and took it as a very strong criticism.
4: Our relationship deteriorated and it got pretty low.
0: That's coming up on Imperfect Paradise from Alaya Studios. Dania Hernandez is a scholar on anti-Blackness in the Latino-Latinx community. And something she said to me has been a kind of guide in how we're approaching this story. She talked to me about how she saw the reaction to the tape scandal.
1: Certainly people who are feeling harmed want an immediate kind of response. And so having people resign and be dismissed and removed, that's a very immediate and visual way of saying we've addressed the source of the problem. But here's what I find so unsatisfactory about that is that it treats this as if it were only about Nuri Martinez and the others, that it's only about them as individuals. And now that we've taken care of the bad apples in the group, there is no more need for discussion. What really is needed here is a much more holistic way of understanding that this is deeply entrenched within our communities. To me,
0: for this story, that means understanding the cultural forces and political history that shaped Nuri's worldview. That's what we're going to get into in this episode. In the next episode, we'll get into the specific racist things she said on the tapes. All right, you good to go? Mm -hmm. Let me know when we're rolling. We're as, this is as good as
3: it's going it to get. Entirely...
0: Nuri showed up to our offices on an early morning in August. Nuri and I were in a dark, quiet audio booth. She brought a notebook where I could see pages of notes with phrases underlined. So I've been thinking about this conversation a lot. Have you? I think that before I
3: had agreed to do the podcast, this interview was seriously giving me anxiety. I really need, for me some type of closure, and at least to begin to tell my story and what this has done to me as a person. And I also think of the people who are just never going to accept my apology, but who really haven't and will probably never forgive me. And so for that, I I carry a lot of sort of shame and guilt, and it is very nerve-wracking. But nevertheless, I felt really good about making my decision to talk to you today. So it is what it is.
0: Nuri was born in 1973 in the San Fernando Valley. Her parents were from Zacatecas, Mexico. Her dad had come to the U.S. first, but returned to Mexico to marry her mom.
3: They journeyed back to L.A. because my mom did not want to be in Mexico anymore. She didn't want the rancho life. They came back illegally. They crossed the border illegally. And so then she ended becoming a seamstress for a while. My dad was a dishwasher. My dad never drove a day in his life. And he would often take the bus, and he would work six days out of the week.
0: Their story intersects with the story of so many migrants who moved to Los Angeles in the late 20th century.
3: When I was five years old, my mom had convinced my dad she wanted a house. They finally bought a small little home in Pacoima, which is where she still lives. At the time when we moved to Pacoima, it was considered the only areas where really Black and brown people were able to purchase
0: property at the time. In the decades before Nuri's family bought their house in Pacoima, the neighborhood had been a landing pad for Black people fleeing the segregated South. Racial covenants stopped them from buying property in other parts of L.A. County. But that percentage of Black families would start to dwindle around the same time that more and more Mexican migrants were moving in.
3: I believe we actually purchased our home from one of the last white families on that block. In 1978, there were still some African American families in my neighborhood, but it was already becoming more and more Mexican immigrant, more than anything.
0: For a lot of immigrant families from Mexico or other places in Latin America where there's this much smaller black community, being amongst black communities is new. Do your parents talk about civil rights growing up? Was that something that you talked about? No, my parents didn't really,
3: were not involved in the civil rights movement, didn't speak the language. I think they were just here under the shadows of never being caught by immigration and getting deported. In fact, my father got deported while my mother was in labor with me. He had gotten deported the day before. My mom goes into labor, she can't find my dad. And a couple of days later, he appears because he crosses the border illegally again.
0: Nuri's father would not be deported again her parents would eventually become U.S. citizens. Nuri had a typical first-generation bicultural upbringing. At home, everything was in Spanish. My father and I used to watch novelas um,
3: before we went to bed. We would love novelas. Mexican soap operas are the best thing. (laughs) We loved them growing up. And that's why I think I speak so well Spanish, because I used to
0: watch these with my dad. And, you know, we would always be crying. They also started watching a recently launched national channel that was specifically aimed at families like theirs, Spanish-dominant Latino families in the U.S., Univision.
3: Because one of the things that I would love to do when my dad got home and we had dinner was watch Jorge Ramos on Univision and Marielena Salinas. And they used to anchor the 6.30 news, and it was the national news for Univision. And my dad and I would watch that religiously every single day. And I was always intrigued about all this stuff that's going on in other countries what was going on in our country. And I remember I was a fifth grader and we were doing a mock presidential election in class. And I remember I got home, you know, waiting for my dad. We were watching TV and I turned around and I said, Dad, ¿qué somos, demócratas o republicanos? And he said, well, the best way I can describe it to you is that Republicans tend to be rich (laughs) and Democrats tend to be poor. That's what your dad said <laughs> to me. That's what my dad said to me. And I was like, so that's it? And I said, well, we're poor, right? And he goes, yeah, we're poor. We work, you know, really hard or whatever. And I said, so, Dad, I declare that we're going to be Democrats.
0: For the past 50 years, Latino voters have always sided more strongly with Democrats in presidential elections. But in the 80s, it wasn't so obvious that was the direction Latinos were trending. Many Latino families then, and still today, hold conservative values, like being anti-abortion because of religious views. But at least in California, something happened that would solidify the majority of Latinos as Democrats for decades. Prop 187. The 1994 ballot initiative would deny a broad range of social services to undocumented immigrants. California's then-governor, Republican Pete Wilson, made Prop 187 a part of his re-election campaign that year. And he paid to air a now-infamous ad that depicted migrants like monsters in a horror film.
4: They keep coming. Two million illegal immigrants in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border, yet requires us to pay billions to take care of them.
0: Hundreds of thousands of Latinos came together to protest the ballot initiative. It still passed, but it was later struck down for being unconstitutional. And ironically... The initiative ended up strengthening Latino power in the state as it galvanized a new generation of Latino organizers and leaders, including council members Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon, the other council members on the tape. But not Nuri. Her political ambitions weren't sparked on the streets, but rather at home. When Nuri was growing up, her family lived across the street from a factory run by Price Pfister, that made products like shower heads and faucets. And the jobs there were good jobs.
3: It paid about 15 bucks an hour. It had health insurance, which we had never had growing up. It had a pension and it was a union job. And for all those four reasons, my mom insisted that she needed to get a job there. So my mom, after her seamstress job every day, she would literally walk across the street to Price Fister and go to the HR department and would put an application in for every
0: single day. This went on for three years. Eventually, her mom got a job working the graveyard shift on the assembly line, fitting parts together. Nuri says it changed their entire life. But it wouldn't last. When
3: I was in high school, I remember walking into my mom and dad's bedroom and my mom was sitting at the edge of her bed crying. She's just crying and sobbing and sobbing. I thought somebody had died. I thought something had happened to my dad. I'm like, what happened, mom? And she couldn't even get the words out of her mouth. And basically, the company had said that they were going to shut down and they were going to move to Mexicali, to Mexico. And I'm like, well, why? And my mom was like, well, because they signed NAFTA.
0: NAFTA, or the North American Free Trade Agreement, was a landmark trade deal between Mexico, the U.S., and Canada. One critique of the deal was that it would make it easier for U.S. companies to move their manufacturing plants to Mexico, where labor was cheaper, and would result in the loss of thousands of U.S. jobs.
3: And she goes, I need to know who the mayor is, and I need to know who the governor is, because we need to tell them 2,000 or 2,500 people work here. And that's when I began to ask my high school teachers, my government teacher in particular, like, how do we get a hold of these people? And I started to notice two things. The majority of the people in office didn't look like me. And there was very few women. Mm -hmm. Those are two observations I made. And what my mom essentially ended up doing with predominantly women who actually were doing the organizing to try to save their jobs, women and some of the workers went on a hunger strike. Mm -hmm. And that lasted for, you know, a couple of weeks to try to keep their jobs there. Eventually, the company slowly shut down. And in the course of, I want to say, seven or eight years, it was completely gone.
0: This, NAFTA and her mom's work to save her and her colleagues' jobs, was Nuri's political awakening. It wasn't the battle against Prop 187. Not that Nuri didn't care about that. But her interest in politics specifically sprang from a desire to help working-class people like her parents. She would keep developing her political ideas in college when she enrolled in Cal State Northridge.
4: We took a socialism class, which I thought socialism was horrible, and other people in the class defended aspects of it, and she was one of them. She would always end up more on the working person side.
0: This is Nuri's friend from college, Stuart Waldman, who now leads a business advocacy organization in the San Fernando Valley.
4: I got to know her through politics. I started the San Fernando Valley Young Democrats with Tony Cardenas and, and Alex Padilla and a bunch of folks.
0: Today, Tony Cardenas is a congressman representing the San Fernando Valley, and Alex Padilla is a U.S. senator representing California. After graduating in 1996, Nuri worked as an HIV counselor at a health clinic near where she grew up. Then, she decided to run for office for the first time. In 2003, she campaigned to be on the San Fernando City Council and won.
3: It's so fulfilling, especially when you get to represent the community that saw you grow up. Neighbors that raised you. In
0: 2007, on top of her San Fernando Council position, she became the executive director of Pacoima Beautiful an organization headed by women that worked to clean up environmental disasters that were left when big manufacturing companies, like Price Vister, left the area. Martha Dina Arguello, a longtime environmental justice advocate in Los Angeles, worked with Nuri at the time.
1: I identified a lot with her. I felt like we were unapologetically Latina. We were ourselves. We were bold and we were bright. And I mean bold and bright, both in brains, but also in how we presented ourselves.
0: Martha made it clear that she doesn't identify with Nuri anymore.
1: The words she spoke were so full of cruelty and anger and pain and caused anger and pain. This was not what I expected from her.
0: Martha says that for a lot of working-class women in the environmental movement, the entry point is all about safety, protecting families in their homes.
1: It's about where we live, where we work, where we play, where we learn, all of those things. And so it is usually women who sort of rise up from the community level because it's impacting, you know, this deeply sacred idea of where we live and where we can't be safe.
0: This idea of being protected in your own home really informed Nuri's worldview and eventually her policies. Even when she was a little kid, she felt responsible for her family's safety. Both of Neri's parents would come home from work in the early hours of the morning, and she'd stay up late, watching for her mom through the window. And
3: I was so worried about her all the time. As I got older, I would just open the front gate and leave that open for her so she wouldn't have to fuss with the key in case somebody tried to rob her or somebody was following her. I would do that with my dad, too. I have the worst imagination when it comes to something bad happening. I just think the worst all the time.
0: After San Fernando City Council, Nuri ran for the school board in Los Angeles and also won. She was pregnant with her daughter during the campaign. She was on the school board for four years when a seat unexpectedly opened up for L.A. City Council in 2013. She later said that she didn't even have to think about running. She knew she was going to. There are way fewer city council members in Los Angeles than most other cities. L.A. only has 15, whereas New York City has 51. So each member in the council has quite a big share of power. They each represent roughly a quarter million people and together help manage a $13 billion budget. So Nuri got to work, knocking on doors.
3: It was probably one of the hottest summers, one of the most humid summers in the Valley, but I was able to win by over 10 points in the general election
1: Nuri Martinez, you are duly sworn in. Much
4: congratulations. Ladies and gentlemen, Council Member Nuri Martinez.
0: Nuri was the second ever elected Latina City Council member in Los Angeles, the first in 20 years. When she got sworn in in 2013, She wasn't just the only woman on the city council. The mayor, the city attorney, and the controller were all men. Most of the other council members hadn't supported her when she ran. But despite feeling like an outsider, Nuri was determined to make it work.
3: I was elected on a special election. Eighteen months later, I was going to be back on the ballot and run again. And so what I quickly figured out is I need to make as many friends on this council as possible because I need to
0: deliver for my constituents. Nuri told me a story that I think really illustrates how she worked to win over her fellow council members. It took place that first holiday season when she was on the council.
3: I remember one time I was sitting around just looking at everyone and I'm like, God, these guys really don't know how to dress. And I like fashion. I remember I made an observation and I'm like, why would he think that tie matches that suit? Oh, that's just a terrible tie. The colors are off. They needed help when it came to to fashion. It occurred to me, like, why don't I get these guys ties? I will go to the mall and pick out a tie based on their personality because I've gotten to know them a little bit. And so I picked out a tie for each of the members. And that's what finally broke the ice. We came back from our winter recess in January of 2014. They all came back on the very first day with the Nuri tie. Every wow. single
0: one had a Nuri tie, and they, would, they called it the Nuri tie. As a city council member, Nuri focused on what she calls quality of life issues. Things like cleaning up pollution, building parks, fixing sidewalks, and fighting sex trafficking on a notorious street in her district.
3: Everybody wants what the nice neighborhoods have, which is nice, safe neighborhoods to live in and good schools for your kids to go
0: to. Everyone wants the same thing. Along the way, she started to get a reputation for a certain style of communication. Here's Stuart Waldman again.
4: She's very blunt and held people's feet to their fire. And, I mean, she's very brass.
0: You can hear what Stuart's talking about when you listen to Nuri addressing the council about dockless scooters in the summer of 2018, a year after they were first introduced to L.A.
3: Thank you, Mr. Chair. So I don't have any dockless bicycles or scooters or any of that fancy stuff you guys got in your (laughs) districts. Um... We're just simply trying to cross the street without getting killed, just to put it all in perspective. Um, but my question to she spoke
1: is, like she was raised in Pacoima.
0: This is veteran Democratic strategist Mike Trujillo, who grew up in Nuri's part of the valley.
1: And anyone that was raised in Pacoima, they all sound like they're raised in Pacoima. A little bit valley, a little bit street. And, you know, depending on whether English or Spanish was your first language at home, you would come out with an accent. And honestly. I think she's proud of that, and she should be. I think the proof is in the pudding. She got elected.
0: Nuri used her brashness to her advantage on the city council. The council had a reputation of voting unanimously almost 100% of the time and ironing out disagreements in meetings before the vote. And so the people with the power became those who were able to read the room and persuade in those meetings. Herb Wesson, the first Black city council president, was known for being good at this. And he saw that Nuri was good at it, too. He appointed her to a leadership role.
3: What I would often do is whip votes for him. I know I was very instrumental in passing the minimum wage ordinance. Him and I worked on that together. And I did a lot of behind-the-scenes work, and I loved it.
0: Mike Bonin, the council member who, along with his son, is derided in the tapes, was sworn in one month before Nuri. Mike was elected to represent L.A.'s west side, which is a whiter and wealthier part of the city. So he and Nuri came up on the council together. Initially, they seemed to be very aligned policy-wise.
2: So we started out good, and we, in my first couple years, we were co-sponsors of the $15 minimum wage, and we worked together very closely on that. We worked together on a few low-wage worker issues. And she and Marquise and I were really the three council members who were big on addressing traffic violence, and we worked together really well on that.
0: Nuri was also very close with Councilmember Marquise Harris-Dawson, one of the three Black council members at the time. He felt like he could relate to her because of the parts of L.A. they grew up in.
4: Let's just put it, that part of town has a lot in common with South L.A. So, you know, you get along well. We were both allies on the council. We were both allies of, of Council President Wesson. So, you know, we tracked together quite a bit because of his leadership.
3: Why did you want to be city council president? I never thought I was going to be. When I was on the city council, I never looked at Herb Wesson as like, oh my God, that's the job that I want. I want to lead all these
0: people in this council. Never, 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 never. But then five years into Nuri's time on the council, President Herb Wesson brought up the idea that she could someday be council president. Herb Wesson confirmed this story, by the way, as well as all the other stories Nuri told me about her journey to become president. And I said, you think
3: I could be council president? He goes, yes. And he said, you really have this great way of like looking at the bigger picture and just knowing where people are going to be at. And that's a really good trait for being a really good council president. I go, you think? And he goes, you do. You do. You just got to like simmer down on the, you know, you get really like, because I would get mad and I get fired up really quick. Being a council president, you got to like check that. Because you got to be friends with everybody. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. And he goes, well, you're going to have to check that because everybody here is going to have to be your friend. I said, okay. But it it was never personal. I would get fired up over issues that I cared so much about. At the time, there was rumors that Marquise Harris-Dawson wanted to be council president. So I said, was Marquise going to run? He goes, he hasn't talked to me about it, but I'm going to say the same thing I'm going to say to you. Whoever can get to seven votes, I will be your eighth.
0: In other words, Nuri and Marquise had to both go out and try to get seven votes from fellow council members. And whoever was able to do that, Herb would support. He wasn't going to take sides. And so Marquise, who was one of Nuri's closest friends on the council, became her opponent.
4: Then our relationship deteriorated and it got pretty low.
0: Coming up, the tensions on the council deepen. Stay with us. This is Imperfect Paradise. I'm Antonia Serejido. Being council president comes with a lot of power. You're essentially the gatekeeper, the person in charge of deciding what issues make it into the agenda and therefore what gets voted on.
3: You basically set the tone for the city council, and the council is the most powerful body in Los Angeles because We are not set up the way New York and Chicago is, where the mayor actually has more power and control of the legislative body. It doesn't work like that in the city. The power is with the city council, so it's a very powerful position.
0: And as Marquise Harris-Dawson and Nuri Martinez competed for the presidency in 2019, Mike Bonin was firmly on one side.
2: I was very early in Marquise's camp. Marquise was my closest political ally. We were very aligned on pretty much everything. And I encouraged him to run for president when Wesson was stepping down. And I was extremely loyal to him. And when he decided he didn't think he had the votes, he and Nuri came to my office, and she asked for my support. And I looked at Marquise, and I said— are you releasing me from my commitment? And he said yes. And I think she was surprised that I took that extra step, but she also saw, all right, you're really loyal to the people that you're with.
3: I thought it was weird (laughs) because I had had individual conversations with all the members and the fact that my. Would only meet with me with Marquis present. I was like, okay, so there's here, there's an alignment now. There is a coalition maybe building. And so that was always sort of in the back of my head. And as any politician, you have to be wary about that. You have to be careful with that, that the coalition doesn't grow larger, that it doesn't grow
0: angrier. Nuri was elected city council president in December of 2019. The vote was unanimous. She took office a month later. She was the first ever Latina in the role. I had set forth
3: a family's first agenda. It was actually my speech that I gave on the council floor the day I was voted in as council president.
0: Nuri was wearing a white dress with a sparkly embroidered collar and red lipstick. She stood at the speaker's podium in front of a full house and began to speak.
3: I am a child of the working poor. And this is why I champion issues of the working poor. And my main priority is to create a family's first agenda for every single child and family in our city. Our family first agenda has to start with ensuring that our Homeless and Poverty Committee are tracking and housing families as a top priority.
0: It was January 14th, 2020. Almost immediately, Nuri would have to pivot away from her planned agenda. I was
3: elected by my peers, and the pandemic literally shut down the city two months later. Just having to pull us through something so scary and the uncertainty of how we were going to function as a city, let alone the public scare that we were having every single day that we went into work, was daunting and really, really hard.
0: Over the next two years, the formerly unanimous council started to fracture, both publicly and privately. Everyone was a Democrat, but now deep divisions began to emerge between the progressive and moderate wings of the body. Instead of debating about housekeeping issues like paving streets and picking up trash, council members were debating how to keep people from getting a deadly virus and losing their homes. Those divisions, and interpersonal feuds— would become the backdrop for the secretly recorded conversation. The first fracture appeared in the spring of 2020 around the cancel rent movement. Besides getting sick, the scariest thing about the pandemic for many people was loss of income.
3: People were really afraid to get evicted. And so there was a really huge movement to try to get us to cancel rent. and. Because I held tight and because I did not know whether that was legal or not, and I actually got legal advice from several people, including our city attorney, it wasn't something that was legally feasible.
2: There was then a dispute about how to do renter protections, and I was fighting for a more aggressive strategy, and she was aligned with the city attorney on it.
0: Mike Bonin became a vocal critic of how Nuri was handling renter protections. Early into the pandemic, the council was supposed to vote on those protections. Then Nuri canceled the meeting because the city's IT department hadn't yet figured out how to run council meetings on Zoom. Mike was on the phone with a reporter when he found out.
2: I'm like, I don't think we should cancel the meeting. I said, I'll go in a hazmat suit. We're supposed to vote on renter protections. I mm-hmm. will be there on Tuesday. We got to be there. This is, this is crazy. And Nuri, I think, took it as me proactively making a statement against her and took it as a very strong criticism. It increased tension and a number of activists get very angry with her and the people who voted for the less aggressive ordinance.
0: Nuri said this is where the division began. She felt Mike was implying she didn't care about renters. Ultimately, no major city would end up canceling rent, including Los Angeles. Instead, in May of 2020, the council would enact limited renter protections that meant people could challenge evictions in court. But for a group of activists and certain council members, including Mike, it didn't feel like enough.
3: What I got was an avalanche of protesting. They ascended on my home at 6 o'clock in the morning, literally within those two weeks. My cell phone number was posted on Twitter. So I had thousands and thousands of voicemail messages calling me every name in the book threatening me because I wouldn't cancel rent. And then the next thing that happened is they tweeted my address. And so I had people showing up in cars at literally 6 in the morning, honking,
0: cursing, yelling obscenities into bullhorns. Another issue that put pressure on Nuri's leadership was the push to defund LAPD. How did you experience the George Floyd murder personally And then how did that political moment impact the city council and your role within it?
3: I was council president at the time of the George Floyd civil unrest, particularly in Los Angeles, and I took some shots for it. The police department wasn't happy with me after I co-introduced a motion to cut the police budget by $150 million. That was not a popular thing at the time, especially with law enforcement and more of my conservative part of my district, but I did it as an ally to the African-American members who asked me for help on that
0: motion, and we introduced it together. But a year later, the council voted to add some money back into the police budget.
3: Latinos in my district do support the police. There is a growing number of Latino police officers within the department.
0: Do you see that as a place where there is potential animosity or friction between the Black community and the Latino community no. in Los Angeles?
3: Mm-mm. I never saw it that way. No, uh, in fact, I heard from African-Americans in different parts of the city that are also pro-police. Just like I heard Latinos who don't necessarily think policing is a way to resolving every single community issue in their district, in our communities. And so in my district, when there was this whole debate over how much we cut the police department, there was a pushback that, you know, in my district, they want law enforcement, they want it present, they want to be able to call 911 and have a black and white show up in a reasonable time to deal with their issue. They tend to be more conservative on these issues, including homeless issues and quality of life issues altogether.
0: That last point about homelessness and quality of life would turn out to be the most challenging issue of all for Nuri and the council.
4: If we do this, you know it's going to happen. You know, a bunch of black people are going to get arrested.
0: That's coming up on Imperfect Paradise. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash paradise, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash paradise now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash paradise.
1: The L A S Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism.
0: Over the course of the pandemic, homelessness in LA, like many West Coast cities, skyrocketed. In the fall of 2021, Nuri and the other moderates on the council voted in favor of maintaining a ban on homeless encampments near schools, parks, daycares, and libraries. The way she saw it, her district and other poor districts, mostly made up of Latino immigrant families, were bearing the brunt of the homelessness crisis. But for the more progressive council members, including Marquise Harris Dawson, The ban on homeless encampments effectively criminalized homelessness. And it was another example of the city cracking down on the most vulnerable.
4: I had conversations with Nuri, and I said, Nuri, you know if we do this, you know what's going to happen. You know a bunch of black people are going to get arrested. We all know that. Even LAPD will tell you that that's what's going to happen. We just went through that with the war on drugs. Why would we do it again? And basically it came down to, well, people are complaining. Well, if people are complaining, I get that. Then solve the problem. Like, you have a problem of homelessness. You don't have a problem of people sleeping on the street.
0: The city controller reported that over the last 11 years, nearly 37,000 people have been arrested for violating this ordinance. A disproportionate number were Black. Over 40% of all arrests in a city that's less than 10% Black. Here's former council member Mike Bonin again.
2: She treated homelessness as a problem for housed people.
0: What Mike Bonin told us was that he said that you see homelessness as a problem for people with homes. (laughs) What do you think about that characterization? With people with homes.
3: You mean with the people with homes in my district? Like um, that the homelessness issue is a problem for homeowners. The homeowners in my district work really hard to have that little home. People in Sun Valley, People who own homes in Sun Valley are housekeepers, are hotel workers, are janitors, are construction workers. They're the people who we rely on for the city to move forward. They're the working class. They just happen to own a home. Like my parents. My parents are not millionaires. They bought their home in 1978 and they paid it off. My parents were not wealthy. So that's almost like saying the working class should be punished. Because they happen to own a home and a little something that they can probably leave to their children and their grandchildren. And for that reason, they don't deserve clean streets or a clean neighborhood. Are, are we being
0: serious? I asked council member Marquise Harris-Dawson to break down what he understood Nuri's ideological position to be.
4: I always think of her as what we call in the black community a bootstrapper. Right? So there's this whole notion of Booker T. Washington versus Du Bois. Du Bois would say the system holds people back and we need to work together to change the system. And Booker T. Washington would say, forget the system, let's have our own farms, let's do our own thing because that's never gonna work. And if that means going along with them on some stuff, let's go along with it, right? Because it's never gonna work for us anyway. And that's kind of how I think of Nuri's politics. So. There were times when she would defend the status quo to protect a set of people from her group who had figured out a way to thrive within the status quo, even though the status quo was hurting the vast majority of people.
0: Current L.A. City Council member Eunice Hernandez, who's one of the more progressive members on the council, described Nuri's ideology this way.
1: I think... Her ideology is is reflective of, like, we need to fight for the hardworking folks. And I'm with you on that. But that doesn't mean that we can't fight for everybody else, too.
0: I asked Nuri about this. I also see this as a story about Latinos as a growing demographic. As Latinos become... More powerful because there's more of them as they start to acquire more wealth. There's a fear that maybe they would assimilate and not ally themselves with the most marginalized communities, that they would just advance within the system that exists that already does not serve those who are most marginalized. Do you see that as a possibility for the Latino community? Is that a concern for you?
3: On the city council, it's different because we don't look at necessarily these polarizing issues at the national level. The council gives you a very small glimpse of what people care about at a very local level. These are people who get up early in the morning, go to work, and sometimes get home, change clothes, and go to their second job. All they want to be able to do is be able to go home and feel safe. That's what Latinos want in general. Have a good school to send their kids to, have enough to hopefully one day acquire the American dream, which is buying a home that's so not attainable anymore, have some generational wealth for their children and their grandchildren, right? And in my opinion, that's in my district, that's mostly what Latinos spoke to me about. Those are the types of issues they cared about. They weren't so much about this other national conversation about the left of left. My parents are progressive, and we were raised to be progressive and take care of, of other people and take care of our community and look out for one another My politics come from a lived experience, that's it. I know what it feels like to be poor. So I'm not going to get drawn into these politics of people who often don't have the same lived experience. Just because you're some fancy writer, you've written a book or a white paper, and you're going to come and tell me how to lead. I don't take well to that.
0: Nuri told me that she did not shy away from disagreements with her fellow council members. She didn't always work to resolve the conflicts before the vote, the way Herb Wesson had. She wanted council members to debate in public. But some people found Nuri's confrontational style to be unproductive. They thought she was using her power as a gatekeeper of the city's council agenda to punish people she disagreed with. Here's Councilwoman Nithia Rahman, one of the more progressive council members, who often found herself at odds with Nuri.
1: Things that I thought would be a no brainer would take weeks, even months to get put on the agenda. And at some point, it just felt like, you know, we had so many examples where even the most basic things would take a long time to get put through the council. And we couldn't always find any reason for why those delays would happen.
0: Hillel Aaron is a reporter who covers local politics in Los Angeles and he began reporting on Nuri when she was on the school board. He told me that he saw her change after joining the city council, and especially after becoming president.
4: She had this meanness about her. She seemed to take it out on different people. To me, she seemed like she had already learned by then how to be an operator, how to to kind of control votes and push political strategies.
0: Do you think being city council president made you, like, a harder person? 100%.
3: It made me a harder person because I had to defend myself. I developed a wall because no matter how you looked at things, no matter the politics of the council, somebody always wanted
0: my job. Then, in the summer of 2021, the politics of being on council became very personal for Nuri and very scary. June of 2021, two men got onto my property, spray
3: painted my driveway, and then poured some acid fluid on top of my personal car that's like 20 feet away from my daughter's bedroom can you imagine if that thing would have blown up but i heard very little outcry when that happened to me it's like it almost felt that the two and a half years of being council president and all these protests and all this criticism just became normal i just needed to take it nobody cared Nobody cared that I had people protesting me at 6 in the morning. Nobody cared that people were protesting me at 7 o'clock in the evening. Nobody cared that two guys walked onto my property and poured some
0: acid fluid on my personal vehicle. It didn't matter. Nuri had started to feel paranoid, like people were out to get her. By the fall of 2021... The tension on the L.A. City Council reached a boiling point, just as they launched into the once-in-a-decade process of redistricting. The way it works is once every 10 years, a city council-appointed commission redraws council boundaries to reflect new census data. And for incumbents like Nuri, this process is live or die. You can lose huge numbers of voters who support you, or you can gain them. Redistricting was the reason Nuri, Kevin, Gill, and Ron were meeting that day, in October of 2021, when they were secretly recorded. They didn't like one of the maps that was being proposed. Nuri says that the months of tensions, of deepening divisions and growing distrust, the stress of people throwing acid on her car and protesting outside her house, that she brought all of that into the room, that it set the stage for their conversation.
3: I've thought about that particular day, God, a thousand times, if not more. I was so frustrated and so angry and so alone and so abandoned by everyone, particularly other members.
0: I understand the frustration, but I think there's a difference between being frustrated and saying things that are insensitive, like you said. I think that there are a lot of sort of internal biases that we as Latinos hold in the community that people picked up on and they wanted to use it as an example to talk about this larger conversation about race. Do you think there's an anti-blackness problem in the Latino community?
3: I don't know. I don't know if the league tapes have... Um, I, I can't, I don't know. I mean, that's a really good question.
0: Next week on Imperfect Paradise, we press Nuri to address the racist comments she made in the secretly recorded tapes. This episode of Imperfect Paradise was written and reported by me, Antonia Cerejido. Catherine Mailhouse is the executive producer of the show, and Shayna Naomi-Krockmull is our vice president of podcasts. Emily Guerin is the senior producer. Our story editor is Meg Kramer. Minju Park is our producer. She also scored our series. Ali Bianco and Rebecca Katz are our interns. Our editorial team also includes Tony Marcano, Frank Stoltz, Megan Garvey, and Kristen Muller. Fact-checking by Caitlin Antonios. Mixing and theme music by E. Scott Kelly. Music by Jay Valle, Ex Manana, and Joseph Quiñones at Secondhand Sounds. This podcast is powered by listeners like you. Support the show by donating now at las.com slash join. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.